This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. As with most leading-edge opportunities, if you can't afford to potentially lose your investment, don't risk it. We make no personal recommendations about any sponsor on this program. We encourage you to do your own research. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. Visit us at ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a compelling interview with Dr. Seth Letterman. He's an MD and the CEO of Tonix Pharmaceuticals, trading on the NASDAQ as TNXP. Tonix is a biopharmaceutical company focused on commercializing, developing, discovering, and licensing therapeutics to treat and prevent human disease and alleviate suffering. The company is currently developing medicines to treat conditions including long COVID, fibromyalgia, lupus, organ transplant rejection, depression, autism, MS, chronic pain, PTSD, migraines, cocaine intoxication, gastrointestinal cancer, and more. Dr. Letterman is a physician, scientist, and entrepreneur, and the founder of Tonix. Prior to Tonix, Dr. Letterman founded Targent Pharmaceuticals, which developed late-stage oncology drugs. Prior to becoming a biopharma entrepreneur, Dr. Letterman served as an associate professor at Columbia University for two decades and directed basic science research in molecular immunology, infectious diseases, and the development of therapeutics for autoimmune disease. Dr. Seth, welcome to the program. It's great to be on the air with you today. Thank you for having me on, Ellis. If you don't mind, give our audience an overview of Tonix Pharma, please. Thank you. I'm CEO of Tonix Pharmaceuticals, and we are a biotech company listed on NASDAQ under the ticker TNXP. And we have a range of activities. We have two marketed products for the treatment of acute migraine. Then we have several programs in clinical development. That means they're not approved yet, but we're doing testing with the hope of getting FDA approval. And then we have a number of basic science activities. So I believe that you can consider us a fully integrated pharmaceutical company where we go all the way from marketed products to clinical development products to things that are really in, in a lab at an early stage of development. You and I met at a financial luncheon showcasing your company a few weeks ago. We had a great conversation at that time. And what struck me the most was the diversified palette of drugs that you are bringing to the market, hopefully within the near future or when they are ready for the market. But what stood out the most was your treatment of fibromyalgia related to long COVID with your TNX-102 drug. Many people my age, and I'm in my late 60s, we think we're losing our memory because of age. We think we're tired because of our age. We're depressed because we're older and we're tired. But according to what I've learned from your presentation, from other individuals that I've spoken to in the same age category, is that all of these may be symptoms of long COVID and they need to be treated. Thanks, Ellis. Well, I have a long connection with long COVID because it starts with my career as being a physician. Before I went into the biotechnology industry, I was a professor at Columbia Medical School and also an attending physician at the hospital associated with Columbia. And I was, in addition to being an internal medicine doctor, was a rheumatologist. And rheumatology is the subspecialty of medicine that takes care of fibromyalgia patients. So I had a lot of familiarity with fibromyalgia before I went into the biotechnology industry. And as a matter of fact, our company, Tonics 
Pharmaceuticals was founded with the idea that we were going to make a treatment for fibromyalgia. So this is almost a 30-year project for me. Tonics is about 10 years old, but I've been very involved in fibromyalgia for many years. Now, fibromyalgia is a condition that affects mostly women, and the most common symptom is that people feel like there's pain all over their body. But when you ask them more about it, you realize that's one of really four main symptoms. They have widespread pain, but they also have fatigue, they have sleep problems, and they have brain fog. So those four symptoms make up fibromyalgia pretty much. So widespread pain, fatigue, poor sleep, and brain fog. Fast forward to 2020, and the COVID epidemic started, and a colleague of mine who's a professor of rheumatology at University of Michigan wrote an opinion piece in a prominent journal of rheumatology and pain, and he predicted that the epidemic of long COVID would be followed by an epidemic of fibromyalgia. I bring that up because that shows how rheumatologists view long COVID. And I think that what he predicted has been borne out. And from my way of thinking, and many other people's thinking, for many people, long COVID looks a lot like fibromyalgia. And they have four symptoms that are very familiar to people like me. Widespread pain, fatigue, trouble sleeping, and brain fog. Now, when I say these four symptoms, different people have more of one and less than another. And I think generally speaking, fibromyalgia people more frequently complain about widespread pain and long COVID patients more frequently complain about fatigue. But if you ask them, I think that many people have elements of all four of those problems. Can it mimic rheumatoid arthritis in any way? Because I noticed after I had COVID last year, I started feeling these pains in my hand that didn't happen before. And one last year and one this year, I'm not asking for a diagnosis doctor at all. I'm just saying, did you see a lot of these symptoms specifically increase and maybe answer this question already after, let's say, 2022, 2023, late 2021, when we've had a chance for people to actually complain about these conditions after having COVID? Those are great questions. One of the reasons I went into rheumatology as a young physician was I admired the rheumatologists so much because rheumatologists, even within medicine, are the people that other doctors go to to ask about confusing cases. They are considered the master diagnosticians in medicine. And they get that reputation because many times it's hard to distinguish rheumatoid arthritis from fibromyalgia. It's hard in the beginning, but over a period of time that can be years, it can be a decade, usually those two different conditions will start looking very different. And there's an old saw in medicine and particularly rheumatology that the disease will leave its signature. So in the short term, there are many people who have pains in their hands and they wonder, do I have rheumatology? Do I have fibromyalgia? And it may be hard for them to tell, and it may be hard for a physician to tell. But over time, they're very different. Over time, patients with rheumatoid arthritis get very clear inflammation on their joints. So it 
It's tenderness. If you squeeze the joint, it'll be very painful. And then if you go a longer period of time, their hands develop a particular deformation. Their fingers point to the outside because of the way their fingers look. So there has not been any increase in rheumatoid arthritis after COVID. So I suspect and I'm not acting as your physician, but I suspect that the feelings that you were having in your hands were more likely a short or very mild case of long COVID as opposed to a possibility that you would be developing rheumatoid arthritis. And this could apply anywhere in the body. It could apply to the chest. One day you could wake up and perhaps you've got a pain in your hip that you never had before. The next day you're fine. These are, and I'm only speaking from personal experience, but I have spoken to other men my age actually. These are new symptoms that have just popped up after we've all had COVID. Now, let's hone in on TNX-102 and its potential application to these symptoms. Thanks. TNX-102SL is a medicine that's designed to be taken every night at bedtime. It contains an active ingredient that is rapidly absorbed under the tongue, gets into the bloodstream, gets into the brain. And the mechanism of TNX-102SL is to improve sleep quality. Now, I mentioned before that there are four major symptoms of fibromyalgia and of long COVID. And I mentioned widespread pain and fatigue. And then I mentioned sleep problems and also brain fog. But the sleep problems are important because we recognized that the sleep problems appear to people who are suffering with fibromyalgia as just one of four symptoms. But from a therapeutic perspective, we hypothesized that if you can treat the sleep symptoms, then the rest of the condition has a better chance of getting better. So improving sleep quality is a way of treating fibromyalgia and long COVID. Now, I don't know if that's because people are sleeping better that fibromyalgia gets better, or if people are naturally inclined to recover and bad sleep gets in the way. But I do know that it's not uncommon if you ask a fibromyalgia patient, they're usually afflicted by having pain all over their bodies. It's not uncommon to ask them, do you ever feel better? And for them to respond and say, yes, if I can ever get a good night's sleep. So what we have realized is that for one reason or another, if you can improve sleep quality, then the other symptoms like widespread pain and fatigue can get better. So we've been doing that in fibromyalgia with our medicine. And now recently we've reported the results of a phase two study with our medicine, TNX-102SL, and we saw a benefit on improving fatigue. Now, the design of that study was that the primary endpoint we were looking at was to improve pain. And it was a small study, a proof of concept study, and we did not observe a decrease in pain that met the threshold for the study, but it did trend in the right direction. But I think what we learned from that study was an improving sleep sleep quality is followed shortly after by an improvement in fatigue. That's really an exciting result for us because in long COVID, fatigue is the signature symptom, the symptom that is the dominant contributor to disability and something that really defines long COVID. When you did this Prevail study, and I say Prevail, but that's the name that you used to name this study, I believe. You had 63 patients. I'm assuming some of those were 
placebo, but how extensive were the conversations that you had with these individuals prior to the study and post the study to determine the effectiveness about treating one of those symptoms, which is sleep disorder? Yes. So it was a study conducted at the highest and most rigorous level of clinical investigation. It's called a double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trial, and it was done at multiple sites, at 30 sites. So those are all criteria of the most rigorous type of clinical investigation. And the 63 patients were divided pretty much half and half into people who got drug and people who got placebo. But in a double-blind, randomized study, The patient doesn't know whether they're on drug or placebo, and the doctors, nurses, healthcare providers who are evaluating them also do not know if they got drug or they got placebo. So at the end of the study, a lot of information that's been collected is analyzed when the study is unblinded. So it's done in a blinded way. And that's when you find out whether the drug had a benefit over placebo. In the case of this study, sleep was evaluated by two important ways. In one way, the participants in the study kept a diary essentially on their mobile phone and would report their sleep quality each day of the study. And in another method, a widely used scale called the Promise Sleep Disturbance Scale was used. And that was done baseline at week 2, 6, 10, and 14 to determine whether they were having changes in sleep disturbance or sleep disturbance, the opposite of that is sleep quality over the course of the study. So those were two different measures that were used to evaluate sleep quality, and both of them showed promising results. Some of the folks I've chatted with about this particular malady have recommended homeopathic treatments, vigorous exercise, certain juices, things of that nature, vitamins. That leads me into this question here. How healthy is this drug for the body in general? And what are the side effects? And can we consider it something that is not toxic for the body? Yes. Well, all prescription drugs have risks and benefits. We believe that our product, TNX-102SL, has good tolerability. The most common side effect that has been observed in this study and in other studies where we've used TNX-102 has been transient tongue numbness. Now, if you recall, the medicine is put under the tongue where it rapidly disintegrates. So over the course of the study, about a third of the people on drug and a few, but a lower number of people on placebo will report that at least one of the evenings that they take the medicine before bedtime, they experience tongue numbness. Now, this is a transient sensation. It goes away. It's self-limiting, so it goes away in itself. But that is the most common side effect. There were a few other side effects that were observed over the course of the study, but none at the frequency of the tongue numbness. So I think that every drug has to be weighed in view of this kind of risk-benefit analysis. And one of the ways to do that is to see if people drop out during a study, or I think one of the best measures of testing a drug's benefit is called the patient global impression of change, the PGIC. And I think that's an important measure because in the patient's mind, they balance whether they're getting a benefit from the drug And if they're getting any kind of side effect, what that would be, that would 
weigh down their enthusiasm for saying that they are very improved or much improved. So in the study that we just reported on, the Prevail study in long COVID, people on drug, roughly, there are twice as many people who responded on the PGIC that they were very much improved or much improved. So I think that together with recording side effects that were observed with everyone in the study, both on drug and a placebo, I think the patient global impression of change is a good indication that on balance, the drug seems to provide a benefit. Seth, this is fantastic. We certainly have a lot to talk about over the next three months. I'm excited. Of course, I want to know when this drug is going to be available in the marketplace. So maybe you can quickly answer that question. The fastest that this drug will be on the market will be for the indication of fibromyalgia. In fibromyalgia, we already have one positive phase three study, and we are deep into a second phase three study. To get FDA approval, a drug typically needs two positive phase three studies. So if the second study that we're wrapping up right now is positive, which we'll know before the end of the year, then we can file our new drug application sometime in 2024, and we would expect to get FDA approval in 2025. So that's the fastest it can be available. But we do think that with long COVID, given the enormity of the problem, the HHS estimates that between 7 million and 23 million Americans have long COVID. So given the enormity of the problem, there may be ways that the government speeds up the approval of long COVID drugs. But it would take, if the fibromyalgia drug were to be approved in 2025, long COVID in the normal course of action would be a year or even two years after that. But there are no approved drugs for long COVID. So you have to start somewhere and we're excited, we believe, to be really at the forefront of long COVID treatment studies. Tell us about the financial structure. Tonics has no debt. We have about 17 million shares outstanding. The stock is trading at about a dollar right now. The last time we reported our cash at the end of Q2, we had roughly $26 million. And in August, we completed a financing where we raised $7 million. Well, Dr. Seth Letterman, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you for having me on the show, Ellis. I've been speaking with Dr. Seth Letterman, CEO of Tonics Pharmaceuticals, trading on the NASDAQ as TNXP. Learn more about the company by visiting their website, tonicspharma.com. Tonics Pharmaceuticals is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report and a client of Martin City Studios, LLC. Certain statements in this broadcast are forward-looking. Do your own research and invest only at your own risk. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com I'm Ellis Martin. Could sodium chloride or salt-based solid-state batteries replace lithium-ion batteries or add to the choices for energy storage? Might these batteries be the perfect solution for grid storage? We're going to find out today. Join me now as we take a virtual trip to Perth, Australia to visit with Iggy Tan, the Managing Director of Altec Batteries Limited, trading as ATC on the ASX. Altec Batteries is commercializing a 100-megawatt-hour solid-state sodium chloride battery production facility and is also at the cutting edge of developing battery materials for a lithium-ion battery future by successfully incorporating silicon in graphite anodes to produce higher-energy-density batteries. 
Mr. Tan is a highly experienced mining and chemical executive with a number of significant achievements in commercial mining projects, such as capital raisings, funding, construction, startups, and operations. Mr. Tan has over 30 years of chemical and mining experience and has been an executive director of a number of ASX-listed companies. Iggy, welcome to the program. We love having you on the air with us. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Alice, and thanks for having me. It certainly is a pleasure. I want to start off right away in this conversation with a bit of a complaint. It's not about you. I bought a beautiful Tesla Model S Plaid two years ago, and by gosh, if the charging situation is not what was promised, the range is terrible. And I think if I had waited two or three or four, maybe 10 years or so, I'd get better value for my dollar as it is. Now, what are you doing with Altec batteries to really change the dynamic with regard to lithium ion batteries and that technology? Yeah, thanks for the question, Alice. But our batteries are actually sodium chloride or salt batteries, but they solid state batteries. So just to give you a background of where lithium ion batteries are heading to. So if you understand the problem with a lithium ion battery, they tend to catch on fire. And once they're on fire, it's called thermal runaway. And it's very difficult to put the fire out because it generates oxygen at the cathode end of the battery. So the industry is trying to go to solid state. Essentially, they're trying to remove the liquid electrolyte in a lithium battery because that's flammable to a ceramic piece, which is called solid state technology. So I don't know whether you've heard of solid state technology, but essentially that's what they're trying to do with lithium ion batteries. Our batteries are the solid state technology, but we don't use lithium. We use sodium chloride, which is common table salt. But unfortunately, we're not looking to make batteries for you EVs, Alice, we think the bigger market is in the grid storage market. The grid storage market is growing at 28% year on year and expected to have about 150 billion invested by 2035. So a big industry growing and that's where we're targeting. Fair enough. I can certainly continue the conversation with regard to batteries for EVs, and I want to, but let's dig into sodium chloride batteries and talk about energy storage. We can generate energy in many, many ways, especially here in the Western US, Australia, some parts of Europe, Africa, and what have you, but storing energy is the biggest, biggest problem. How do you store it, keep it, maintain it, make sure it doesn't lose its density and preserve it. And you're saying the answer is salt. Is that extremely economic? Let's talk about the grid storage. You are correct. There's a lot of green transition energy providers coming on stream. So solar farms, wind farms, etc. But they haven't resolved the problem of storage because technically you're generating power during the day when the sun is shining. But at night, you don't store that power so that you can use it at night. So you haven't solved the main problem. So grid storage is very important. Essentially, you've just got a whole bunch of batteries on your grid so that during the day when the sun's shining, you can charge those batteries. And at night, you can discharge the batteries and provide power 24 hours of a day. So it's called energy shifting. And the battery storage business today includes lithium ion batteries. They tend to be more the lithium ion phosphate batteries or LFP batteries. This is probably your battery that Tesla is going to use in their future cars because they don't have cobalt and nickel, which is very expensive material. And they're also safer batteries than the nickel cobalt batteries. So the grid storage has 
have these kind of batteries, LFP batteries. They've got vanadium flow batteries. But we're providing an alternative, which is essentially a sodium chloride solid state battery. So the technology was developed by the Fraunhofer German Battery Institute out of Germany. And we have a joint venture arrangement with them to commercialize that technology in a 100 megawatt plan that we're building in the east part of Germany. So the main message is that we didn't come up with the technology. The German Institute has spent nearly 35 million euros over the last eight years developing this technology. And our job is to commercialize it. And that's what we're planning on. Essentially, you're almost the end user. You're vertically integrated. You're developing the process, engineering the process, mining, and taking it to the end user. Explain the vertical integration, if you don't mind, because I'm fascinated by this. So essentially, our technology is using salt. So it's essentially a ceramic tube filled with salt and a nickel metal powder. There's a positive probe in the middle, and it sits in a metal canister. So that's the battery itself. Now, when you charge the battery, the sodium ions migrate through the ceramic tube, and it forms molten sodium on the other sides. When you discharge the battery, the molten sodium discharges back into, through the ceramic tube, grabs the chloride, and becomes salt again. It's very similar to a lithium battery. Instead of lithium, it uses sodium. And sodium is actually a very reactive material. If you remember, Remember your periodic table and your chemistry from high school, Alice, sodium is just under lithium. So it's very reactive. But the best part of sodium, it's freely available. So it's just common table salt. Now, if you think about lithium batteries, what goes into a lithium batteries? Very expensive critical minerals. Lithium. Now, lithium, the price of lithium has gone up fivefold in the last two or three years. And that's put a lot of pressure on the lithium battery industry from pricing. Cobalt goes into lithium batteries, and there's concerns that ethical supply of cobalt, because 70% of cobalt in the world comes from the Republic of Congo, and there's issues with child labor and workplace issues. So that's a concern for the lithium iron battery industry. The other thing is also graphite. 90% of graphite comes from China. So imagine one country providing all that material for all the batteries in the world. That represents a geopolitical risk. Then you've got things like copper. Copper, there's two and a half times more copper in your EV than a normal petrol car engine. And there's reports that say that there's not even enough copper mines being developed to just meet the EV demand. So that's another concern. And so because of all these materials, our battery is a real benefit is that we don't use lithium, we don't use cobalt, we don't use copper, we don't use graphite, we don't use manganese. We just use common table salt and nickel metal powder, which is also in lithium battery. So that's our main advantage. It's going to be about 40% cheaper to produce these batteries. And that's what the world needs. The world needs cheaper and cheaper batteries. I don't think that any of our friends in the mining sector that are in the business of mining or developing projects that include lithium or nickel or copper or cobalt would be very happy with this conversation that we're having right now. I beg to differ, Alice, because we need all types of batteries in the world. The lithium battery is a great battery. I was at a mining club event last week and I was on the panel talking about critical minerals. And I made the statement that mining has to increase about a thousand percent to meet the green transition. So as the world moves to renewable energy and the green transition, mining has to increase 10 times. And yet 
around the world, people don't want mining. <laughs> you have to understand that the mining is actually the key to the green transition. I made a statement, you might love this, Alice, I said to the audience, who has an electric vehicle in the audience? And people put their hands up. And I said, do you know that on day one receiving your electric vehicle, you have double, double, 200% the carbon footprint than a normal petrol engine? And it will take you 10 years before you are the same point as an ICE vehicle. And then you get better from that. So a lot of people were shocked because they didn't realize that just because that getting an EV car, yes, it's great. And I'm all for EV cars because I'm more interested in the pollution reduction because EVs take out this fine particulate pollution that's causing health effects and the climate change. So all for green EV cars, but people got to realize that your carbon footprint is actually double and you need more minds to make it happen. Are you familiar with your carbon footprint for your Absolutely. Your, yeah. your Tesla? Absolutely. Yeah. I rushed into buying the car because I'm in the, the same business as you are, not exactly, but as a journalist. And I thought I needed to represent. So I got rid of my car collection, which consists of internal combustion engines. And I bought a Tesla. And I was very excited about it. Then I thought, wait a minute, knowing what I know about what you just said, I've doubled the carbon footprint. I'll never get the value that I personally paid for the car. I'm not going to be a polluter, but that carbon footprint on the way to it becoming a car that lives in my driveway right now, I didn't do anything for the environment by buying the car. I didn't do anything for my pocketbook, and now I'm not getting the range. And the technology will continue to evolve as far as battery metal chemistry. So, And also the electricity you charge the car is also important. Where does that come from? If you're generating, you know, in Australia, we can generate power from our solar panels. Australia is one of the only countries, one of the leading countries where domestic houses are generating electricity from solar panels. That's great. You actually then in the right area where you're using renewable energy to charge your EV, which is perfect. Is this a proprietary technology that you have? Will you become a platform technology if it is and make it available to everyone? Because I see this as something unique as a potential investor. Why should we get involved in Altec? I've heard a lot of good reasons right yeah. now. Give us some more. Yeah. The technology is actually developed, as I mentioned, with Fraunhofer Group. We in a joint venture where we own 75% of the joint venture and we own the technology. Essentially, the joint venture owns the technology worldwide. Our first project is a 100 megawatt plant. The product that we produce is a 60 kilowatt battery and it goes into a C container, which is about a one megawatt C container. It's designed that you can deliver to the site very simply drop it on deck, plug and play, and suddenly you got one megawatt connected to your grid. It's very much the same as the Tesla Megapacks and so on, but much more robust. The battery technology is quite different. The battery itself operates at 270 degrees internally. It's fully insulated so that you can touch the battery on the outside with your hand. But like a mammal, it controls the temperature by charging and discharging. So essentially, when you discharge the battery, it creates heat. When you charge the battery, it's endothermic. It absorbs heat. So it sort of looks after the temperature of the battery itself. And that's the reason we don't have any cooling fans on the battery itself. So if you take a mega pack or a big battery, there's probably about 260 cooling fans trying to keep the battery cool and probably two air conditioners conditioners in the structure of the battery trying to keep the battery cool. So in your Tesla, most of the management is trying to keep those batteries cool. We don't have that problem. So because we don't have that problem, this battery can sit in a wide range of temperatures. So 
we can operate down to minus 40 degrees. You can drop this battery in the snow and it'll operate at minus 40 degrees. You can drop this battery in the desert at 60 degrees Celsius, I'm talking about, not Fahrenheit, 60 degrees Celsius, and it'll operate whereas a lithium-ion battery has very limited temperature range. They only operate around 15 degrees to about 35 degrees. If you get to very cold climates, your batteries actually slow down, and that's because the liquid electrolyte becomes more viscous. That's one of the other advantages we have. We have a wide operating range. And then finally, we have a much longer life compared to lithium-ion batteries. Our sodium ions don't degrade every time we charge and discharge, so we can get beyond 15 years life. So these are the other benefits of our batteries. How does it compare weight-wise to a lithium-ion battery that might be in an EV? And I remember earlier on a conversation that wasn't really about EVs, it was about other applications. I keep leaning toward them. So tell us about it. The weight-to-volume ratio is slightly heavier than the LFP battery. So we strategically didn't want to get into the EV business. It's a very competitive business. You're talking about we want to get into an industry that is nascent, that is growing, potentially growing very fast, and get into to an industry that we can start off and start to dominate that industry. So that's where the grid storage market is. So we are targeting the grid storage market. Just to give you some background of some of the challenges of grids, Alice, in a normal city where you are, your demand of power goes up at 6 a.m. in the morning because everybody gets up in the morning and they start cooking the toast. The demand then drops during the day and then it goes peaks again at 6 p.m. where everybody returns home and they start cooking and they're putting on the TV and so so peaks in the morning and then it peaks in the evening. Now let's look at solar generation today. It generates power during the day when demand is less. At 6 p.m. when the demand increases, solar goes down because the sun sets. So the electricity suppliers have a big problem trying to manage this because at 6 p.m. demand goes up, your supply goes down, they have to bring power plants on just to meet that demand to 8 p.m. where everybody then goes start to go to sleep. So it's actually very inefficient to bring these power plants up and running for just short periods of time. There's a lot of costs involved. And so the idea that utility supplies can have a bank of big batteries onto the grids, that can actually charge it during the day and then just discharge it for two or three hours at night just to maintain the demand. And that's why the grid storage or the utility supplies are very interested in these big batteries to stabilize their grid. Now, the other issue, Alice, is that with solar panels, what happens when there's a cloud cover? Suddenly your demand drops. Well, the electricity supplies have to have standby power plants ready to meet that short-term demand, and that's very inefficient. So if you had batteries in your system, you can actually discharge it to the grid and maintain that supply. And then finally, the other big issue is frequency drops. So power drops very quickly. You need the ability to just maintain the frequency. And big batteries are the ideal solution for that. At what point does the company become profitable? And when are we going to see them everywhere? Since you're not having talked with car makers for the automotive industry, you must be having conversations with the utilities. And has that started now? And will you be partnering with them? Will they be investors in the company? Explain some of the financial fundamentals as you answer my question, if you don't mind. Yeah, we are currently in the final stages of completing a definitive feasibility study. And essentially, that will give us what the capital costs for this first 
100 megawatt plant will look like. We then go to the funding of the project. The funding will be in three components. The first component is grants. Like the US with the IRA Act, in Europe, there are a lot of money that is, you know, destined for this sort of green project. We will then follow up with a debt component and equity component. So to answer your question, yes, we are talking to a major utility supply in Germany. They have to bring on about eight gigawatts of solar or renewable energy to come on stream, and they're interested in all kinds of batteries. And that is our first port of call. One customer to take most of our batteries of the 100 megawatt plant for five years. That's that's the aim. Once we get this plan up and running, we will then be looking to actually get into the real production of batteries for possibly a four gigawatt factory. Now we're getting into the gigawatt style factories. And obviously, Europe is a great place to be. And obviously, the US is probably the next port of call as well. So we're open and we will start to work with some of the bigger groups because we probably can't just roll this out ourselves. We own the technology and we're happy to have partnerships or joint ventures to develop this technology worldwide because essentially we and the world needs more types of batteries more batteries and more types of batteries well iggy tan it's been a pleasure chatting with you i have many more questions but since we're going to be together for several months i'll leave it for our next interview thank you so much for joining me today in the program thank you for having me i've enjoyed it I've been speaking with Iggy Tan, Managing Director of Altec Batteries Limited, trading on the ASX as ATC. Visit the company's website, altecgroup.com. Questions, comments? Head to our website, ellismartreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Adam Smith, co-founder and vice president of business development for Oroco Resource Corp., a public mineral exploration company trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO and in the U.S. on the OTCQB market under the symbol ORRCF. Oroco is focused on the development of a large copper deposit in the Santo Tomas project in coastal northwest Mexico. Oroco currently has an 8.5 billion pound copper endowment announced in May of this year after an extensive drill program. Copper mineralization at Santo Tomas is located at surface and therefore potentially amenable to low-cost mining methods. It's very well located with respect to the infrastructure that's essential to a large mining operation, and Mexico is among the world's top mining jurisdictions with laws and trade agreements that protect the rights of mining companies. Since commencing exploration and resource definition at Santo Tomas three years ago, Oroco has made a series of rapid advances. These milestones will be achieved against the backdrop of a positive forecast for the price of copper, possibly to historical highs, as a result of dramatic shifts in metals importance to industrial and consumer markets. Adam, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining me today. Great to see you. Good to see you too, Ellis. The original idea, Adam, was for us to both have hats and a drink in hand. I think you were going to be in, in France or Italy somewhere. And it's sort of a gag, but not really, because it's nine o'clock in the morning here. And I never do what I'm doing now, having a sip of Pinot Grigio. You and I have traveled all over the world and we've seen each other in, in many different spots. It's been a pleasure knowing you all these years. Related to Oroco, actually, that's how we met. That's right. We met around about the time Oroco was formed. You helped us communicate the story at the time, the story of the Cerro Prieto mine, a project which we successfully delineated a resource at, permitted that. We acquired surface rights. We got it to the point of a turnkey operation and sold it. Company's been receiving royalties up until recently, so we received royalties for the better part of 10 years on that project. But I do remember us meeting 
I do remember a long history of, of you helping the company get the word out. You're one of the good people in this industry. You help public companies like us, and you allow us to have a, a good time while we're telling the story as well. Well, I appreciate your saying that. You're very kind to use those words. The important thing is in life, Adam, is to, in addition to planning for the future and planning for your retirement, if you will, I don't think either one of us are really going to retire. It's important to have a good time along the way. And along the way in our business, building relationships, whether it's with investors or our peers, people that run public companies or individuals like myself who are involved in the world of getting the word out, it's important to, to break bread and to, to make friends first. Correct. And to keep the lines of dialogue open, you're one of those ways we keep the lines of dialogue open with our shareholders. We've always felt as a company that telling our story and educating people on the market is very important. So sometimes we talk about what Roco is doing. Sometimes we talk about general market conditions and you've helped us do that. And so I thought today, in, in addition to honoring almost two decades of acquaintance and friendship that we've had, we can talk a little bit about copper markets, talk about where the copper markets are right now, because a lot of shareholders are, uh, of junior mining companies have been through relatively long, unexciting times over the last 16, 18, 24 months in, in markets. Yet at the same time, the narrative in relation to, to metals, to battery metals, to energy transition metals is getting stronger and stronger as, and, and reaching fever pitch and all those things that we in the mining business have understood for, for some time now are starting to go to a broader audience. New York Times published a piece a couple of weeks ago about the coming wave of decarbonization under the title of renewable energy is happening faster than you think and basically coming at us a lot stronger and a lot more quickly than, than anybody's aware. This last weekend, the Financial Times wrote, and I quote, the decarbonization of the world's power grids and auto fleets will drive up demand for copper. Electric cars are copper intensive. Electricity from solar farms and windmills needs to be carried over copper wires to where exactly electricity users are. At the same time, copper supply is coming under strain as global copper mines age and become less productive. New mine sites are increasingly remote or politically vexed, and where it's easy to get copper, it's already been gone. The narrative, the understanding of copper's important role and the understanding of uh, the stickiness of supply is starting to reach mainstream, the mainstream press. And so we've talked about it. I think some people have thought perhaps I'm evangelizing on, a, on an obscure subject, but I think increasingly people are opening the newspapers, going to the car dealership, seeing construction in their, in their state, their province, their country, and they're understanding that this energy transition, this copper intensive, metal intensive energy transition is, is indeed coming at us. I think at least in Canada, copper has become a critical metal and perhaps that's what's happening in the U.S. now. It's always been in my mind going back well over 50 years when I built my first electric toy car in 1965, a hand crank generator using copper and magnets to generate electricity. I did that again well over 50 years ago. And in fact, I've got a spool of copper right here in honor of, oh, Oroco. And I plan on using this to make art with. It's, it's the thing I do to, to keep me centered because it can't be all serious financial news all the time. How about the equities? The equities right now are, are sort of flat, just like the equities for gold are. And usually copper doesn't follow gold, but I think in this case they are right now. So if you're going to get involved in copper, which is what I do, you've got to go long. You can't be a nervous Nelly and check the chart every day and, and wonder when you're going to make a profit on your investment. You've got to really go long, believe in copper and know that at some point, some point, 
all the factors that drive a market will kick in. That's right. Yeah. Copper is a commodity. As a consequence, it trades at a spot price determined by today's supply and demand circumstance and today's sentiment. And today, the copper market is relatively in balance. There's fear of a recession. We've had a fear of a recession for a better part of a couple of years now. China has not come back from lockdowns with the boom that, that was expected. So copper spot copper prices are, are not trading as high as they could be. Yet the copper narrative, the story about copper supply and demand situation has never been stronger. And it leads to the conclusion that copper prices are going to go high, much higher in the medium to long-term than the next two years, five years, eight, 10 years. I think we're quite confident that there's going to be a supply crunch and higher prices in the medium term. But in the short term, we're, we're dealing with an equity market that is somewhat subdued and we're dealing with spot car for houses that are somewhat subdued. But you're right, we don't make investments that are going to pay off tomorrow or, or next week or even next month. This isn't, this isn't a racetrack. But if you do your homework, find a company that's heavily leveraged to copper prices, do your research and understand the copper prices and companies with large resources like the 8.6 billion pounds of copper that, uh, that Oroco have are well positioned and well leveraged. The Financial Times goes on to say that copper markets are expected to be 20% out of balance by the end of this decade. That is, demand is going to exceed supply by 20%. And the chief economist at Trafigura says, is quoted in the Financial Times article, as saying 20% short is a bit like the oil market of Saudi Arabia and Russia were to stop producing. Of course, the blind demands do always find a balance. One of the levers that the market pulls to find that balance is price. That economist is predicting significantly higher prices for copper. And he says, with this basic framework in mind, and the basic framework is an understanding of where copper is going, its importance in decarbonization, the fact that the decarbonization rocket has left the launch pad. He says, with this basic framework in mind, it may seem very appealing to have some copper exposure in one's portfolio. The metal might play a gold-like role as an inflation hedge, and copper historically has outperformed gold as an inflation hedge, with the possibility of participation in a step change in the copper price. So you've got an inflation hedge, you've got a commodity that is fundamental building block of modern economies, and you've got this possibility of a step change in copper prices as a consequence of the supply dynamic. So interesting place to be, but I think we're very confident that we know where it's going. We just don't know when it's going to go there. Companies like Oroco, a lot of our peers have, uh, have come down in price in the last 24 months. I think a lot of the froth was was taken out of those markets. That lowering of price represents it de-risking for the investor. So long-term, you know, that's how you play the markets. Is you get in when prices are depressed and distorted into narratives that uh, you feel strongly are going to have a good future. You've been traveling on the road for a long time, for as long as I've known you. And I would think that your travel schedule right now is even more advanced than ever. You're in Europe now. You'll be in Asia shortly. Clearly, you're getting some positive response, both from institutional and high net worth investors. What are you hearing? What is the sentiment? Why are they so excited right now? Is it because of your over 8 billion pounds of copper that you have at Santa Tomas? Or is it just, you know, I better find a copper play right now before it's too late? Our resource was recently announced. It uh, was announced in just May of this year. A couple months later, Cantor Fitzgerald initiated coverage of Oroco with share price targets well in excess of where we're trading now, not based on potential discoveries, but based on the discovery that we actually have, the resource that we have, and advancing it through various stages of engineering studies. I think excited might be a hard 
word to use in, in regard to Gobber investors right now. In a very slow two years, been a very frustrating two years. As the narrative, as the understanding of copper supply and demand gets firmer and firmer, the industries that will be copper intensive related to decarbonization and electrification pick up speed as the European government through the European Green Deal and the US government through the Inflation Reduction Act throw money essentially at the mining industry. There are hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars of incentives between those two new plans towards building infrastructure that is carbon intensive. A headline in a mining journal recently was just that, that governments are throwing money at the mining industry. So those things, those are headlines we all read. I think a typical commodity investor right now would probably think those headlines are just mocking them because the metals and the, and the equities have not been moving. But, you know, eventually all those levers being pulled, all those forces in the market, they will line up. And, and so right now we've got the scarcity of metals, we've got booming demand and, and future demand even stronger. We expect markets are going to be overwhelmed with demand, but we've got sentiment. We've got negative sentiment right now, whether it's slowdown in China, fear of a recession in the United States, interest rate uncertainty. But, you know, you, you start to take away those negative things one by one, and eventually the positives line up. And, and when all the vectors are, enough of the vectors are lining up in the same direction, then, then you get movement. And the commodity market has a history of turning and moving pretty quickly. Copper has increased in price 50, 80, 100, 120% over the course of just a matter of a few quarters, historically, on a number of occasions. Since 2001, when it started at 65 cents and moved up to three and a half, almost $4, it did so in some, some real fits and starts. Post- global financial crisis in 2008, 2009, a little less so post-COVID, but copper and other commodities can move quickly when some of the negative sentiments are, are removed. So I think the U.S. is looking extremely strong right now economically. China just needs to to reverse a few, a few trends, perhaps add some stimulus to underperforming economy, and then Europe needs to, needs to get out from under, under some economic clouds as well. You remove those things and it's those green lights on the drag, drag strip all lighting up and, and turning green and things can change quite quickly. We have a very, very low copper in inventory. So if demand picks up, those inventories will, will quickly deplete and you could see a rush to copper and other metals. What's on the horizon for Santo Tomas and Oroco? Following the announcement of the, of the mineral resource estimate uh, in May, we have a preliminary economic assessment coming up. That will attach some numbers to the project. It will demonstrate um, if it's viable or not. Um, it's a very, very large resource, plus 8 billion pounds of copper. Copper trading is below $4 right now. You can do the math. That's two tens of billions of dollars of metal. So the economic assessment is, is going to study what would be a very, very large operation. A mine capable of many hundreds of billions of annual revenue, maybe a revenue in the range of a billion dollars plus a year, potentially, and tens of billions over the life of, of the mine. So uh, this will be a capex, uh, the PA will provide a capex, opex, discounted future cash flow model and provide a value in present dollar terms of those, those future cash flows net of the capital cost to put down to mass in production. That's a very important milestone for a company like us. It will establish Set the mass in the eyes of potential buyers and in the eyes of investors and give some metrics for valuation. Well, Adam, it's always great to chat with you. Next time, a glass of wine, please. Okay. Yeah, sorry for standing you up. Um, I was expecting to be someplace uh, a little more scenic and sunny. I have uh, an Oroco bulkhead that I brought with me 
So I have my hat. If I were outside today, right now, I think it'd be, it'd be raining on me. I've been speaking with Adam Smith, co-founder and vice president of business development for Oroco Resource Corp. Oroco trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO and in the U.S. on the OTCQB market under the ticker symbol ORRCF. Go to the company's website, orocoresourcecorp.com. For Adam Smith and Oroco Resource Corp., I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit EllisMartinReport.com.